It was nearly 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus that the Apostle Paul wrote the letter to the region called Ephesus, a region that certainly included the city of Ephesus. And here you see the ruins of the ancient theater there, a region that included the seven churches we find in the first, their second and third chapters of John's Revelation. Now to set the stage for the verses we're going to look at this morning, The first 14 verses of the Ephesian letter give an encouraging and uplifting account of the grace of God, a grace that chooses us, a grace that rescues and saves us, a grace that forgives us, a grace that values us, a grace that adopts us, a grace that gives us all spiritual blessings, and most particularly, the blessing of the Holy Spirit, without whom our life transformation wouldn't take place, without whom the power to follow Christ wouldn't happen without whom the evangelism of the church wouldn't happen, nor would we even think about it. And all of this spiritual blessing is just an appetizer of what God has in store for us. It's delightful to think about, isn't it? I like appetizers. I had calamari last night for an appetizer. It was so good. But then came the chicken cutlet over angel hair Alfredo. That was even better. And that's what God has in store for us, a delightful appetizer which he gives us, and then the full meal. And that's here before we're even gone, and you'll see that in our text today. This morning, as we walk through the end of the first chapter of Ephesians, I want to follow a discipline called the Lectio Divina, divine reading, given originally by Origen in the third century, given as a disciplined way to call the Scripture before us as the living Word. This is the Bible. I left it on my pew. There it is. Forgive me, I'm old. This is the Bible. This is the Holy Word of God. This is the Word that tells us about the ultimate Word, which is Jesus the Christ. So in many ways, this is the words about the Word. This book guides our life. This book calls us to repent before the Father so that our lives can be turned around, which is what repentance is. It's going one way and recognizing because the Spirit has been convicting us, we need to be going the other way. This is the book that helps us to do that. This is the book that teaches us what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so in the Lectio Divina, we follow some very important rules for reading this holy word of God. We discover in Genesis that God breathed and that hump of clay that he had formed into Adam became alive. We read later in John 20 that Jesus breathed on his disciples and they received the Holy Spirit. We also read in Paul's second letter to Timothy that this book, this very book, the Bible, is God-breathed, giving us the life and the direction and the light we need for every day of our lives. So we're going to read chapter 1, verses 15 to 23 together from the Bible. We're going to use today's New International Version. It will be on the screen. I invite you, if you're able, to stand and join with me as we read this text, Ephesians chapter 1, 15 through 23. Let us read together. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus 
and your love for all his people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that can be invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. This week and next are basically a flyover of the vitality pathway. We will then dive deep for 10 weeks into that vitality pathway, a pathway you began walking on uh, just a year ago. And we're going to dive very deep, but that will begin in a couple weeks out after we go back to two services and have Sunday school in between. So we have read the text. Now it's time to move to meditation on the text. I considered, I thought about, I pondered all the things Paul was saying in these verses. There's a lot of stuff. We're not going to do it all today. There's too much. But we need to look at it and consider it. So his opening words, verse 15, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all his people. What a wonderful reason to be writing. Paul has heard incredible things about these churches in the area of Ephesians. They believed in Jesus. Their life was based on their faith in him. They revealed their faith in the only genuine way faith can be revealed, their love for God's people. But was that the reason Paul was writing? Very possible. It is also possible that the reason was the previous section, which I just introduced in the very beginning, the magnificence of God, his rescuing, forgiving, blessing, etc., which also is true and a reason for having these kinds of reactions that Paul had. Dr. Paul S. Reese shared his perspective when he wrote, The apostle's mood is one in which thinking of those for whom he prays, he is thankful. And thinking of the God to whom he prays, he is thrilled. His life has been so deeply affected by both. The meditation continues in verses 15 and 16. He says, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. The outcome of what Paul knows about God's action is thanksgiving. When you think about what God has done, how can we not be thankful? But also, the outcome of what Paul has heard about these people's response to God brings him to thanksgiving. But Paul has more to say about his prayer. It hasn't finished by any means. 
I keep asking in verse 17, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Wisdom. Wisdom is a disciplined study. It's observation. It's learning application over time. While God initiates it and gives it, we do our part to learn it. Some of it comes with experience. Some of it comes with age. Now, granted, there are some people who have considerable age who have no wisdom. So it's not a guarantee of just getting older, you get wiser. But if you observe, if you watch, if you learn, if you have any kind of spiritual discipline that's working in your life, wisdom will begin to grow. That's the delight of wisdom. It's something we participate in and can help to foster in our lives. On the other hand, revelation is purely a gift from God. It's bestowment that is beyond our ability to gain by discipline, study, or even observation. God gives it. Our job is to be aware and open to what God gives and to receive and believe what God says. Paul continues, the end of verse 17. He's praying that they would be given the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that they may know him better. That's the intended outcome. It's not an intended outcome that we become wise. It's not an intended outcome that we be given God's insights. The intended outcome for Paul is that we know God better. I was ready to stop here. But then I couldn't. We had to keep looking at this first chapter. So Paul continues his prayer. He says in verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. The eyes of your heart may be enlightened. What do you think of when you think of your heart? You know, in our world today, the heart is thought very differently about than in Paul's day. Today, the heart is mainly thought of as the place of passion, the place of empathy, the place of love. And those are all true for us in our thinking. But in Paul's day, it was that plus It was also the place of intellect, the place of will, the place of attitude, the place of volition. In other words, it was the core of the human being. It was the centerpiece of all of life for a person. Paul is praying that the eyes of our whole being may be enlightened by the wisdom and revelation of God. And he goes on, In order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Once again, Paul's prayer has an intended outcome. Paul wants us to know the hope to which God has called us. This is not a wishful thinking hope. You know, the kind of hope that says, boy, I sure hope this works out. Not that kind of hope. But a hope which is best defined as faith on steroids. I remember the first time I was given some uh, cortisone shots. I was struggling with uh, allergies many years ago uh, after I had moved here from California. It's about 25, 28, 30 years. I don't know, it's a long time. doesn't matter. Your name is Carolyn, right? <laughs> and so I was, I was with an allergist, and he gave me a shot of cortisone and said, this will help, help clear you up. I says, good. Will it help me hit the ball over the green monster? And he asked me, he says, well, could you hit the ball over the green monster before? I said, no. He says, no, this won't do it. So I said, that's all hyped up then, huh? 
these steroids things. He says, no, they're not hyped up. Those guys could hit it over before too. So they gave me these steroids, and these steroids just cleared up my system. It felt so good to be able to breathe, even though all the cottonwood was flying across our backyard, even though all the flowers were blooming and the trees were beginning to push out the pollen, and every morning we had to wipe down all the patio furniture because it was all yellow. Oh, it was good to breathe. That kind of hope on steroids, faith on steroids, what God said happens. Like at creation when he said, let there be light. And what was there? I couldn't hear that. What was there? There was light. God said it. It happened. God created things and that happened. God says things in his scripture to us. The Holy Spirit speaks to us deep inside our own being. When God says it, it happens. Except for the times when he says, well, here's what I want from you. And then sometimes it happens and sometimes it doesn't. Because God doesn't make us do his bidding. He asks us to join him. But if we believe that what he says will be, we will trust him even when he says for us to do something that's outrageous. Here's an outrageous story. Joshua, I want you to march around Jericho one more day. Day number seven. I want you to march around it with all the people seven times. And then I want you to shout. Everybody shout. Make a big noise. Now Joshua was a big leader. Joshua knew how to do battle. He had learned. This was the most crazy assignment he had ever been given by anyone ever. To march around a city and then yell as though that's going to do anything. But God said it. And it happened. That kind of hope. Paul also wants us to know the riches of God's glorious inheritance in God's people. The family of people transformed by God and his holy people. It's us. It's all the people who have ever believed in Jesus. Which is why if you go on a mission trip somewhere, anywhere in the world, and I've been on many of them, you find people that are just like us because Jesus is the center of their life. That's the inheritance. Look around. Look around. Look around. Do. Look around. Look around. What is she wearing today? <laughs> look around and this is your inheritance. And everyone who has ever lived under God and everyone who will ever live under God is your inheritance. Which is why we speak hope at the funeral of a person who's died in Christ. We will see them again. There's a cloud of witnesses all around us, which means what? It means we are never, ever alone. We can try to isolate ourselves. We can close the doors and pull the curtains. We can do all kinds of things, but we're never alone, ever. And if we want, and if we run towards his church and God, we have this cloud of witnesses that will embrace us and hold us and help us so that we can be all that God intends for us. Paul wants us to know the riches of God's glorious inheritance in God's people. And the third thing, Paul wants us to know the incomparably great power for us who believe. Power. That's a bad word. We people don't do power very well, do we? 
people with great power so easily become corrupt or conceited. So Paul helps us understand the nature of this power in the final section of this text. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, powers and dominion, and every name that is invoked, invoked not only in heaven in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. It's the power that raised Christ. In other words, it's life-giving power. That which is dead is made alive. How many of you saw years ago the movie Dead Man Walking? Just a couple. This won't make any sense to the rest of you then. But basically, if you've done any prison ministry, there's a walk to the gas chamber, the death chamber, the end-of-life chamber, and a phrase is called out. It used to be anyway in prisons. Dead man walking. Dead man walking. As that prisoner walked to where his life was going to come to an end. You know, without Christ... Every single human being is dead man or dead woman walking. Only Christ makes it possible for us to be alive. The power that raised Christ from the dead can raise us from being dead men and dead women walking into people who are fully alive and have that hope on steroids of life eternal. It's the power that seated Christ. In other words, it's completed power. The words of Jesus on the cross when he said, It is finished, wasn't saying, I'm finished. It was saying it's completed, it's fulfilled, the work necessary to rescue people, to redeem people, to bring them the hope of life and salvation because of what I've done. The forgiveness of all of their sins, they're being wiped away, that's completed. The act was done. The power that seated him because it was all complete. He has no no more work he needs to do. The way has been made. And the power that placed all things under his feet is dominion power. Over all that is, there are no rivals to Jesus of any consequence. Oh, people try to become rivals of his. People have views on him. And they may hold those, but they're not true. If there was ever fake news, it's fake about Jesus unless it comes from the scriptures. So we read the text. We've meditated on a profound text. And J.I. Packer, in his wonderful aspects on meditation, writes this in his book, Knowing God. Meditation is the activity of calling to mind and thinking over and dwelling on and applying to oneself the various things that one knows about the works and the ways and the purposes of God. And then we pray. We pray. I pray a rather simple prayer after meditating on the scriptures. Lord, what are you saying to me in this text? Or as a pastor, Lord, what are you saying to this church from this text? And then I listen. I've discovered over many years, I've been in the ministry now since 1966. 
I've discovered so many people have a view of prayer that they make their list and they walk through it with God. And then they move on with their day. That's not prayer. That's a monologue. Prayer is a dialogue. And I want to suggest to you this morning that we need to pray by listening more than we pray by speaking. Lord, what are you saying to me? Lord, what does this text reveal to me? Lord, what is this experience meant to help me learn and grow from today? Lord, what would you have me to do? And then be quiet and listen. And in the divine reading of Scripture, this is probably the most important part where God is given the opportunity. He longs to communicate with us by listening. Listen to him. If you really want to know God, we've got to stop talking. We have one mouth and start listening. We have two ears. There's something significant in that. Maybe twice as much listening as talking would be helpful. It is for me. Try it. In fact, I remember in college, one of our guest speakers, I went to Seattle Pacific College in Seattle, Washington. One of our guest speakers began every session in Spiritual Emphasis Week by saying, let's listen to God. And then there was mass silence for about 10 minutes. That was a new experience for me, but a very good one. We need to listen. And finally, we contemplate. God focused my attention on one phrase, that you may know him better. I'll tell you, my initial response was, God, I know you. I've been teaching about you, preaching about you, and studying you, and I don't know how many times I've read through and studied and taught Scripture. I know you. I've got four file drawers full of sermons. I've got two more drawers full of teachings that I've done. God, I know you. Well, he kept pushing that on me. I think I know why. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said it best. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts of God. I need to know you more, God. Thank you for keeping on me. Thank you for pressing back on me to know you more. In the preface to Christian theology, John McKay describes two kinds of people that have interest in Christian things. And everybody falls into these two categories of sorts. First, there are observers. Observers observe. Duh. They sit on a porch. They watch the road. They talk about where it came from and where it might go. They listen to travelers who walk on the road. They comment on how they look and how they're walking. These porch sitters have conversations just like the people they watch go by. But their conversations are merely theoretical because the only movement they make is the rocking of their chair on the porch. Those are the observers. There's nothing wrong with observing, but if that's all you do, there's something wrong with that. Packer speaks to the life of those who merely observe when he writes, to be preoccupied with getting theological knowledge is an end in itself. 
To approach Bible study with no higher motive than a desire to know all the answers is the direct route to a state of self-satisfied self-deception. We need to guard our hearts against such an attitude and pray to be kept from it. Second, McKay writes, there are travelers. Travelers are actually walking the road, like the vitality pathway. They actually walk it. They may have conversations on the same topic as the observers. However, their issues are not theoretical. They are practical. Travelers are on the move. They seek to understand new places, new challenges in life. They're in a relationship with life and with God about life as they live it out on the move together. And as you walk through the scripture, you're going to discover while there are occasionally observers that God has called to be observers, mostly the people are called to be travelers, to make a move, to move forward, to move sideways, whatever God calls you to do. And he calls us all to follow him, which means he's going somewhere. You don't call someone to follow you and then sit in your car in the parking lot. You follow someone leaving the parking lot and going down the road. We are called to be travelers. You see, observers merely know about. They read the Bible as a book. For example, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. That's good. It's true. However, travelers read the Bible as a devotional. Here's how it reads. For me, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give Craig the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that Craig may know him better. That's for me. Your name for you. That's the devotional reading of Scripture versus just the reading of Scripture. Where are you in it? And I've got texts that I've been every character in that entire text. The bad guys and the good guys. So what do you do? How do you take this and apply it? Let me suggest just a couple things. In your bulletin is the September schedule. There are two adult life together classes beginning on the 23rd. One on Christ in the Old Testament and one on understanding the gospel. You want to know God better? Here you go. Sign up. Sign up. Make it happen so that you can learn and grow as a follower of Jesus. Also on Wednesday night at 6.30, there's a class on the Psalms. What a delightful collection of hymns, poems, prayers that God has given us, partly through David and other writers as well. Wednesday night at 6.30. Or in addition, as my wife and I do, We take the covenant home altar and our daily bread, and we do that together. And this is a wonderful book. They're available right out of Sharon's, outside Sharon's office on the table there. Right, Sharon? There's a couple left. And you can go through and read a devotional. It gives a Bible text and then a devotional on it. It's a wonderful kind of boost in the morning. It's got like a five-hour energy drink in, in written form. Pop one of these and help you throughout your day, give you something to focus on. And there's also this prayer calendar, which is our missionaries. Every missionary the covenant supports, every mission field the covenant is involved in. And as you go through it, everything's divided in half. And so for six months, 
You have one group of people, six months, another group of people. It's a great help for prayer direction for your life. These are just a couple of ways to know God better. Take advantage of them. That's why they're there. I end with this. I was 12 years old. Wow. 60 years ago. 12 years old, first day of confirmation. The pastor, his name was Ed Halston Sr. The thing we liked about Ed Halston Sr. was that he couldn't hear. (laughs) So that when, he was a great ball player, by the way, too. But he couldn't hear. And so when we were asked to recite scripture, we could just... (laughs) And he wouldn't admit he couldn't hear, so he'd say, oh, that was very good. And it wasn't good at all. Isn't that terrible? Uh, uh, Confession is really good for the soul. But the very first day of class, we walked in, he says, what is the highest and most important knowledge? Some of you might know the answer to this. It was catechism question number one in covenant catechism from according to thy word, the old red book of confirmation classes. What is the highest? By the way, there were 12 pages of memorization back then. We didn't have all the distractions we do today. What is the highest and most important knowledge? To know God and his son, Jesus Christ. John 17, 3. Now this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. What is the highest and most important knowledge? Answer after me. To know God. To know God. To know God. God. And His Son, Jesus Christ. John 17, 3. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, And Jesus Christ, whom I have sent. Father, help us to know you and your son, Jesus. We know this is beginning Christianity. Help us to get into the scripture, to read it devotionally. Help us to travel the road of faith with other travelers that we sit with and worship with on Sundays so that we can know you better. Nothing is better for us than that. So help us. In Jesus' name, amen.